We welcome you today to the Tuesday People podcast, the podcast that was inspired by the book Tuesdays with Maury, which I wrote now uh, 25 years ago, started writing it. That's when I sat alongside my old college professor, Maury Schwartz, in the last months of his life as he was dying from Lou Gehrig's disease and uh, had what was a last class in life and what matters in life when you really know you're going to die. Those lessons turned into that book. Never expected it to turn into the audience that it ultimately found, but it has. And there are a lot of people around the world who are continuing to read that book and learn lessons from it. And we started this podcast to continue to do the same in the podcast world by every Tuesday revisiting some of the lessons that Maury and I spoke about and seeing how they relate to life today. And uh, so many of them hold up in so many ways. With me, as always, is my partner and friend and producer, Lisa Goich. Lisa, good to see you. Nice to see you as always, Mitch. And you're feeling well now. Our audience is very concerned uh, about yeah. you. You know, <laughs> They're your very health. concerned about me. Yes, they write. They, they text. I wish, you know. How's Lisa? Yeah, I'm not 100%. Okay? Lisa made the mistake <laughs> of, of saying on a podcast a few weeks ago uh, that she had gone to the hospital for a procedure. And you never do that in, in this in podcast <laughs> land, unless you just really like getting that kind of attention. <laughs> Uh, which maybe you do, but everybody cares. I'm about honest. Even, so. I just, I'm an open book, Mitch. I'm an open but, book. I tell you're everything. Okay. I, you're okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Okay. You know, little <laughs> aches and pains, All right. you know, here and there. But the eh part is going to get you more, <laughs> more texts from people. But I'm here. Time. So that's what's important. And we're glad you're here. Also joining <laughs> us today, today's going to be a very enjoyable and special podcast because uh, Maury's youngest son, he had two sons. Rob Schwartz is joining us from Tokyo, Japan, where he lives, to share Woo! some of his thoughts about his dad and, uh, and, and, and how our lives have intersected as well. Rob, great to have you on our program. Thank you so much, Mitch. And it's just probably like in the middle of the night in Japan, so we appreciate you doing that as well. It is indeed, actually. <laughs> well, it's nothing like wow. a conversation in the pitch black darkness to you make you, you know, ruminate on the... On the subjects at hand, uh, I want to. Well, I wanna... you know, it, it reminds me of a time that we did exactly the same thing in the middle of the night in Japan once before. If you know what I'm referring to, yeah, yeah, uh, we uh, that was during the Olympic Games, I believe, right? That's right. Yeah. in Nagano in 1998. Yeah, and uh, we ended up doing a radio show from there, which because of the time, uh, I think we started about 3 a.m. Uh, in order wow. for it to be live at five or four in the afternoon in in in, in America, and uh, Rob, <laughs> there aren't that many guests you can get at that hour in no, Japan. So uh, Rob was a Rob was a regular <laughs> because for some reason he allowed me to. Good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you were a regular, and plus you could speak the language, so you uh, interpreted for us, and uh, and you've made a good part of your life over in Japan. Uh, by the way, Tuesdays with Mori is is. Read in Japan, is it not? It's it's translated. I think it has a, a decent following there. Absolutely. It's been translated into many Asian languages. Um, the Japanese situation is, uh, is good. I, I want to talk a little bit about China because the play is a massive, massive hit in China. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, but I mean a massive hit. It's I been had... performed like wow. 300 times. Wow! Yeah. yeah, I had no yeah. idea. Of course, I, they're never going to tell me. And uh, 
uh, and they're never going to account for it, I'm sure, in some way. But uh, I'm glad if it reaches people, then, then that's great. I wasn't aware of that. I know you travel in those parts of the world. Why, why do you think, uh, because I was, I was surprised when, when I went to Japan, uh, when Tuesdays with Mori came out as a book and it was first translated, I remember I, I, I did a, a book tour there, and yep. the people were asking me, is it true that Maury knew that he was going to die ahead of time and was willing to talk about it? And I thought that that was, I mean, clearly, if you read the book, it's such an obvious uh, question. But what I learned, and you can elaborate on this for us, is that in the Japanese culture, at least back then, you know, 20 plus years ago, it was more common if someone had a terminal illness to just sort of say to them, um, you know, go home and, 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 and take care of things, whatever it was like code talk for it, but nobody really said you're going to die and nobody really wanted to talk about their mortality that way. Uh, elaborate on that, if you would, for it. Sure, us. sure. I, I think that that's right. Uh, in Japan, it's more of a sort of assumed thing. Like you said, the doctor would use code words and the patient would understand like that something was, was, you know, very, very wrong. Uh, the Japanese culture in general doesn't like to talk about uncomfortable things. They, they kind of gloss over that sort of thing. So mm. that is uh, maybe, you know, par for the course in Japan. In China, and there was a movie about this recently, which you probably know, called The Farewell, they actually deceive the patient and do not tell them, or at least it, it has been a tradition, that they do not tell them that they have a fatal illness and the patient has no idea and everybody in the family knows, but that's different than wow. Japan. In Japan, yeah. they, they use sort of like a, a code word and everyone has understood what's, what's going on, but they really don't talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. No, no wonder they were so fascinated by a book or a play that, that was very open about it. And your dad, uh, w of course, talked about it openly. The very first time people would come meet him, he would say, listen, I'm, I'm going to die. Uh, you know, I, I, my body is decaying. Are you okay with that? Let's talk about it. If you're not, I'm all right with it. So that, that's at, at loggerheads, apparently, with the Japanese culture, which I guess may, is what perhaps made Tuesdays with Mori such a, maybe an oddity and therefore a, a, a popular book because there it was in black and white. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that... Um it's also kind of true, or let's say was kind of true, in our culture as well. I mean, I think that you know as well as anybody that 25, 30, 40, 50 years ago, people didn't really talk about death. And, uh, you know, the, there was a famous book by a woman named Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, which addressed this taboo. And I think that your book, Tuesdays with Maury, addressed this taboo in American culture to a huge extent, and, and opened up this discussion about let's talk about death openly and honestly. Really, Mitch, I think you've had a huge cultural impact in, in people talking about that, that sort of thing openly and honestly and with their you know, emotions on the table. Well, I, I think it's more your, your father than, than me, but I put the words down, and, and uh, I'm, wherever I'm, I'm glad that uh, that dialogue has, has, has opened because it's important. You, on the other hand, as, as Maury's son, you had a, a front row seat to this, uh, even in front of my seat, uh, and had to deal with it before I even returned to the picture uh, because uh, Maury had been diagnosed with this before Ted Koppel 
came into his life, obviously. When you, when you found out that your dad had ALS, do you remember how he told you what your reaction was, what his reaction was? Oh, absolutely. Um, it's not that my dad told me. What happened was he had been not feeling well. He had been not walking properly. His gait was a little bit off. I mean, I can go into great detail for you if you like. I visited uh, Boston. I was already living in Japan, just moved here basically. I was already, uh, sorry, I was visiting Boston in November of 1993, and things weren't quite right. And they did a series of tests, and there was a lot of, you know, doctor's visits. And then in July of 1994, uh, so uh, what would that be, um, 10 months later, right. nine months later, uh, the doctor actually came to the house. And we were sitting around the dining room table, which you know very well, right. in um, West Newton, the same dining room table with the famous letter writing session that's right. so eloquently described in your book. And the doctor told us. And when I say us, it was myself visiting from Japan, my mother and my father, the three of us, that he had ALS. I remember the scene extremely vividly. And how did your dad absorb the news when he, when he heard that sentence? Well, I don't think he or any of us really knew exactly what ALS was and what was going to happen. Once we got that information, you know, we had to research it and look into it. So it wasn't an immediate crushing blow, but it was obviously extremely heavy news. And uh, yeah, we were all pretty, pretty shocked and uh, um, distraught. As you know, my father had an incredible ability to look at the, you know, the bright side, find the silver lining, as it were, and uh, make the best of everything. But certainly it took him some time to... to uh, you know, adjust to the new situation. I think you describe it in the book as well. I mean, he said to us, and this was sometime later, not the same day the doctor was there, you know, he made a conscious decision to accept this illness and to accept the fact that he was going to die and make the best of it. I mean, literally right. a conscious decision, like I can, you know, not accept this and be miserable, or I can accept this and make the best of it. Yeah, he he uh, described it to me as, a, you know, sort of almost a fulcrum. He could go left and say, well, I'll just be miserable for the rest of my days. Why me? Why did I get stuck with this lousy lot in life? You know, what did I do to deserve ALS? Or I can go positive and try to figure out, is there something I can do with this? Uh, something that I can, some way I can turn this into a positive. And, you know, I guess fortunately or ironically or whatever uh, term you want to use for it, because he'd been a teacher his whole life, there was a natural path to do something with his terminal illness that perhaps someone who had been, I don't know, a welder or a, an accountant or a TV executive wouldn't necessarily have or come naturally, and that is to teach, to turn it into a lesson plan, to turn it into, okay, uh, this is what I normally do in life anyhow. I gather information and then I dispense it to students who don't know it yet. And so he got to go through the process of dying and it was quite natural for him to teach people like me and others who came to visit. Uh, here's what I'm learning. Here's the knowledge I have. Let me 
let me impart it to you. That kind of is who Maury was pretty much his whole life, right? Yeah, I mean, I agree 100%. I think you've hit the nail on the head. It was it was a natural fit for him, and he said this as well, and I'm, I'm quite sure you say it in the book, that he is going to use his death or his illness and eventual death as a lesson for other people, whatever lesson or, you know, information or wisdom, if you want to use that word, they can take from it, then that's some some small success that he's had, you know. You mentioned the uh, letters uh, and the letter writing. I asked Maury uh, uh, about that after the first Nightline program and some of the letters that he got. We have a little clip from that that uh, we're going to play. Uh, listen to it. You got 150 letters from strangers. They say usually, you know, every every five letters indicates, you know, uh, 10,000 people, you know, or whatever really? would have wanted to write you or thought about writing you. You know, they say everyone that you get. So if you get that many, you realize how many hundreds of thousands of people. I mean, you know how many watch eight almost million. eight million people. Mitch, I can't conceive of the number of people who watched. I have no way of conceptualizing it. It's a lot, that's all I know. Mm -hmm. I know I touched a lot of people. Mm -hmm. Now, how long-lasting it is, who knows? Mm -hmm. The fact of the matter is that I felt real grateful for the opportunity to do this. So, let me ask you, Rob, when that first nightline hit and when these letters started coming to the house, how did he react to it? How did you, your brother John, your, your mom Charlotte, react to the fact that suddenly something that had been very, very private, uh, only you know the close family members, the Brandeis community, maybe some other people really knew that your dad was ill like this, and suddenly the whole country, and in many cases world, knew that he had this and was starting to reach out to him both in condolences but also for wisdom. How did, how did you all absorb that? Wow, it's a uh, it's a long uh, answer. I'll, I'll try and make, keep it. Well, that's brief. why podcasts have no have no limits. We can go as long as we want. All right, <laughs> give us the answer you All like. righty. Okay, I need to step back actually before um, the thing that that Dad just described, which I think he's talking about Nightline, and Nightline obviously right. had this huge reach. It reached you know a tremendous number of people. It was probably the most watched news magazine show on American television at that time. But but the fact is, and I, I think you do know this, Mitch, that um, it had started long before that. The beginning of it was the Boston Globe wrote an article about my father and right. how he was using ALS to teach people about the value of life. And so it wasn't really a private thing after that. The Boston Globe is obviously very well read in the Boston area. So everybody around us knew and everybody of their circles of friends already knew about it. The article was kind of a hit. And that's actually, I wonder if you know this, led directly to, to uh, Ted yeah. Koppel. Yeah, yeah, he had yeah. It, got it on his desk and a uh, producer said, hey, we should go up to Boston and investigate this thing. And, and uh, eventually they did. So yeah, that Boston uh, Globe article was the fulcrum for the whole the whole thing That's happening, right. and therefore it ultimately led to to me being there too. So, so you began exactly. to get attention and be, began to get that kind of following even before Nightline. That's right. That's right. And it was even before Nightline. It was already a decision my father had made 
that I'm going to talk about this openly. So it was already a public thing. And he would actually have groups in the house, not, <clears throat> sorry, not groups of strangers, but groups, you know, he was all involved in these sort of psychological process. That was one of the things he taught. He taught a course called group process, which you probably remember right. how we process right. stuff as groups. So he would have all these groups in the house and talk about death and talk about his death. So it was a very public thing already before he, you know, Ted Koppel arrived on the scene. Right. And when it started to become wide scale, uh, share with our audience uh, one of the times where you would sit with your dad and go through the letters. Uh, he would ask you to read them and, 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 and make responses. Tell us about that. Well, I mean, there, there's a lot of different experiences like that. You capture it so beautifully in the book that uh, I don't know if I can, uh, you know, tell it as, as well as you have. But yeah, I mean, the, the point that I think, and you captured this in the book as well, that was so evident was that he was really concerned about each of these people who, of course, he didn't know, he had never had any contact with before, and they were writing him a letter, and we would study and think about the letter as if this person was a close personal friend of my father's who deserved and needed a very personal and, you know, well-thought-out response. And that's why the letter writing took so long, because he didn't just dash off, thanks for your letter, I appreciate the best wishes, you know, yours, more. He never did anything like that. Mm -hmm. It was always a very well thought out, you know, compassionate response. And that's kind of the joke of uh, what you have in the book, when he had this one letter that was like, 14 pages long right, and we right. went through the whole letter and then what do you say to somebody who poured their whole life out to you right right so, i think his response was thank you very much for your long letter yeah yeah, yeah. that was my joke that's my one joke that was your joke yeah well uh the fact that he took time to to do that for so many individuals and i'm sure some of them are listening to us now who may have gotten a response back from him. But I'm curious for you, Rob, as, as Maury's son, was there a part of you that felt like, okay, I only have a certain amount of time with my father left, and now I have to share it with this worldwide audience who just saw my dad on television, but they've never met him, they're never going to meet him, and, and it's eating into the time uh, that we're going to have left and into the concentration and things like that? was there Because it would be very normal to have those sort of feelings. Yeah, that's a, that's a deep question, Mitch. I'm going to have to think about it. You know, off the top of my head, I want to say no, that uh, we had a lot of time together. I actually sort of left Japan, not exactly left Japan, but I spent a tremendous number of uh, months at home with Dad because we knew the time was running out. So I felt like we had a lot of time to hang out and share things. But the secondary, more, you know, deeper, thoughtful response is, yeah, I might have I might have had that that feeling like way deep down. To tell you the truth, I, I'm not really sure. Hmm. But uh, certainly it was evident that a lot of people wanted my father's, you know, advice and were drawn to him. And you have to also feel some pride and 
joy in that. So I probably had deep down some conflicted feelings, I would say, without, you know, really taking a deep psychological dive into it. That would be my answer. Right. Uh, I want to play you another cut of your father in a conversation that we had where we talked about you. And this is this is pretty interesting uh, little interaction that he related about you. Listen. Well, I had this little talk with Rob. I said, yeah, you know, Rob, after all, you're growing up now. Tell me some of the things that I could have done differently. Would have been better. Yeah, he said, you're a pretty good father. He says, however, <laughs> you're too overprotective. And I said, you're absolutely right. Mm. I am. So I think I would have tried to decrease that. And In what ways were you overprotected? How did that manifest itself? Oh, let me see. There were times when I said, have you forgotten this? Did you do that? Are you going to be wearing your headgear when you ride your bicycle? Stuff like that, rather than letting him do it, you know. Mm -hmm. And even now, here he is. And having lived on his own, gone into all kinds of, what I would say is, not so secure places, like being on the desert, sleeping out by himself or right. something. Not even now, I'd say, well, have, you, have you forgotten this? Mm -hmm. Do you remember that? It's kind of a compulsive thing, which uh, I guess because I'm somewhat of an insecure parent, mm -hmm. having been an insecure child. Mm -hmm. I don't want to see him suffer. What's your reaction when you hear that? Wow, you're really asking deep questions, Mitch. <laughs> this is a deep show, Rob. We don't, we don't do yeah, this for our own uh, amusement. Wow. Um, there's, so there's two. First of all, I could tell you about very specific, way over-the-top, overprotective things that my father did. And some, one is actually a point of family contention. So probably I should, I should leave that one out. Okay. It has to do with me being in Tibet, actually, mm. uh, quite a long time ago. But um, I, to answer that question, I mean, all of those things are, are perfectly accurate. And I think what Dad said is the root of it is that, and this is, of course, in the book as well, as you well know, his biological mother passed away when he was whatever it was, five or six, maybe seven. I guess yeah. he was probably seven. I think it was in 1923, and he was born in 1916, so he would have been seven. Um, and that colored his life for the, for the rest of his life. It had an effect on everything. And one of those things was how life is so fragile. And, you know, the thing that every parent wants to do is protect their child, right? Mm -hmm. Even if that child has grown up, is an adult. And that was something that constantly expressed itself, even if, you know, it was in a way which we would consider overprotective. Hmm. That's interesting. It's so interesting that, that Maury suffered that early death in his life of his mom, and it affected him and made him so worried about the fragility of life, and that he ends up with a, a terminal illness that, in a very slow progression, forces him to have to 
face the fragility of life for himself. Uh, and, right. and, you know, it's, uh, that may have led to his very interesting perspectives on it and, and a desire to sort of hold it off and fight it back with wisdom which is how I always looked at how your father handled death. It was, he, he called ALS his horrible, wonderful disease, horrible for all the apparent reasons of it, that ALS is horrible and what it does to your body and all that, but wonderful because it gave him all this time to say the things he wanted to say, to do the things uh, you know, with other people. He couldn't go physically do things, but, but establish things or, or get things straight with people and to share the wisdom of what he was going through to create a little bit of a, of a legacy. I don't think he had any idea what the legacy would be or the fact that people will be teaching his words 25 years later. One of the things that we talked about uh, that I did a whole chapter on in the book was forgiveness and how important it is to forgive everybody everything uh, because when you get to the point where Maury had gotten to as he would, and they would always pause and say, and you will get to where I am. This is to remind me that I wasn't going <laughs> to, I wasn't going to somehow get around death while he had to go through it. Um, he said, you're not going to care who was right or who was wrong. You're just going to care that you have made peace with it and that you get along and, and yet you can tell the people that you love, that you love them, et cetera. What do you remember either going through that with your dad of any things that he wanted to be forgiven for, or you to him, or, or seeing that in action with other people? Uh, certainly, I, I saw it in action, and he talked about it a lot. I don't feel like there was anything directly between he and I that that I needed to forgive him or he needed to forgive me. I don't, I don't feel that was really a factor in our relationship. But you did hit the nail on the head in that he really appreciated the time that it it took, you know, X number of months, 16 months, actually, from the time he got the diagnosis to the time he passed away, that he had all this time to, you know, do all the things that you talked about, forgive people, teach, and uh, offer, you know, what he knew or what he felt to be valuable uh, to to anyone who, who wanted to listen and as I mentioned, he and I also got to spend so much time together. And he actually commented on it. He was like, think about what it's like for people who love someone, who are very close to someone. And, you know, that person has a heart attack. Boom. They're gone in an instant. When you never even thought in your mind, like, this person could be gone, then they're gone. How, you know, horrible and, you know, heartbreaking is that? compared to somebody who has 16 months to say to everything they want to say to people and express right. everything they want to express. Right. And he and I actually spent a lot of time like practically going through my life year by year and talking about our memories and talking about, you know, things that had happened and things that we did together. And he said many times what a blessing it was that we had this time together. So as you say, wonderful, horrible, the great paradox of the disease and of life itself. You're, one of the other lessons that has resonated strongly with our audience here and, and with people who have read the book is uh, summed up when your father told me, if you don't like the culture, don't buy it. 
And he spoke a lot about, you know, being willing to separate sort of from what the status quo is, from what the status quo of values in the country might be. Uh, and, and of course, your, your dad, at least to me, seemed to live his life that way. You know, he wasn't a big television watcher. He wasn't a, a pop culture kind of guy. Uh, when you were growing up, can you give us some examples of how your father sort of lived that sentence if you don't like the culture, don't buy into it. Uh, that's again, I mean, your questions are so deep and so could co- go off in so many directions. I would say that it it's, how can I express it? It's pop culture or it's something like mainstream culture that he separated himself from. But much more than that, he created in his life what he wanted to have. So I can give you one great example of it. So in addition to being a professor of sociology, which my father was, and I think most of your listeners know, my father was a, a therapist and a, a psychologist and a counselor. And in the early 70s, obviously influenced by the ideals of the 60s, he started a sliding scale slash free counseling self-help group in Cambridge called Greenhouse where he got together a bunch of like-minded therapists and psychologists and offered psychological help to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. As you know, psychologists Mm and psychiatrists are very expensive. And a lot of people, low-income people, can't afford that sort of thing. So he created in his life what he wanted. It wasn't just a matter of rejecting pop culture or ignoring pop culture. In fact, I think he kind of got a kick out of some aspects of, you know, very light American culture. But he created the things in his life that he wanted the culture to move towards. That's what I would say. Yeah. Um, Yeah, he did that. As you pointed out, he also had these discussion groups. I remember one of my favorite discussions, uh, favorite little back and forth with your dad was, uh, he, he said, well, like, you know, instead of watching television, I, I have these you know, discussion groups. I said, well, like what? And he said, well, let's see. We have one that uh, we made not too long ago, how to deal with the nuclear threat. And I said, how to deal with the nuclear threat? He said, yeah. I said, well, who was in that group? And he said, well, it was me. And uh, I can't remember specifically, but it was along the lines of like uh, the guy down the street. And there's this truck driver and a guy from over at school and about five or six people. And I said, uh, and so when you got together, did you solve the nuclear threat? And he said, no, but uh, we talked about it for a couple of hours and we made ourselves feel better about it. And I just thought that, you know, because I was playing around with him, like, okay, you're going to have the, the, the local people on the block, you're going to meet for two hours, you're going to deal with the nuclear threat. But, you know, and he kind of lobbed it back over the net and he said the point wasn't to solve the problem essentially the point was to just talk about it and have a group talking about it and i I imagine these things took place over your house over the years so perhaps you saw some of these discussion groups uh you know on on unusual subjects taking place right near you know down the hall from where you slept absolutely this was certainly a thing throughout his life and as i mentioned greenhouse was a, a big part of that offering um, low cost, uh, you know, mental health, mental care for people, but absolutely group discussions about whatever topic, sometimes political, sometimes psychological, sometimes emotional. That, that was essentially the focus of his life. As I said, he taught courses 
One was called group process. And yeah, that was going on continuously. And one thing I might add, which uh, you don't, you might not know because uh, it's funny that you choose that particular focus group or that particular discussion group, which was one of many, as you said, right. uh, that actually a book came out of that discussion group, which is called The Nuclear Seduction. I think it's probably out of print now. But so it's not like these guys just sat down and talked about it and made themselves feel better. They actually wrote a book wow. about it in the end. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. And what? so my father was on television a couple of times talking about the book. I have a uh, copy of it on a DVD. I think it was a public television station in Michigan. And huh. basically it was, uh, you know, he was talking about how crazy the nuclear arms race was and how we should try and do everything we can to reverse this and, mm. and you know, bring down the number of nuclear warheads in the world. Yeah. What, what do you think your dad would make of the world as it is today? The country, shall we say. It's too, the world's too yeah. big. But America as it is wow. today. Yeah. It's such, it's such a, you know, sad, sad state that, that I have to say he would be, you know, um, I don't know how to express it, extremely disappointed. I mean, things are so divided and mm -hmm. there is no crossover. You're on this side or you're on that side. And everybody says, oh, you know, we love everybody and we have everybody's best interest at heart. But when you drill down into it, they're really only concerned with their side of the argument and right. not the other person's side of the other. They're not willing to see it from the other person's perspective. And this would make him very sad and, and very disappointed. And as you know, it's not that this didn't exist when he was alive. It's just gotten so much more intense in the exact period since he's not been with us, right? Yeah. What, what do you think he would, because it's not your father's way to sort of curl up and just be depressed about things and not do anything. He always tried to, as we indicated with the nuclear threat or even that, he tried to counter it with his own ways and means uh, in a divided country like we have now, and it's such a polarized thing. What do you think your father's technique would have been in terms of teaching or, or other things to come up with to try to battle against it. Right. I mean, I, I think you've touched on it already. He would have group discussions with people, whether or not that would be 12 people in the house or 1,200 people in an auditorium. And he would try and stress the ways of, you know, making bonds between people who don't necessarily agree on everything. Right. You know, we can disagree on whatever it may be, politics, religion, but in the end, we're all humans and we're all connected by this human experience and human, you know, uh, human nature that we have. I mean, stay human was, was one of the things that, that he stressed. And I think that that's the way that he would try and deal with it is obviously talking directly to people, whether it's a small group or a large group. I, I'm not sure that I would see him like going on TV or something like that as he did with, with uh, Ted, but certainly talking face to face with people, whether it be a large group or a small group and trying to emphasize our connections and our, uh, you know, shared experiences and our shared values 
as opposed to the values that we don't share. Yeah. I could easily see Maury leading a group of, uh, you know, uh, young African-American males who had bad experience with the police and older uh, white police officers, uh, you know, who had their own experiences and, and, and managing somehow to, uh, to get everybody in a room and keep everything calm and, and find the common humanity. Uh, I think, you know, were he younger and living now, he'd probably be compelled to do that kind of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'm going to fantasize right now, but Mitch, you're such a talented writer, not only of books, but of screenplays. I think you should develop a TV show for exactly that, what you just said. <laughs> I'll put it on my list of things to do. Thanks, Rob. <laughs> Thanks for your confidence. Uh, finally, what, what do you find yourself missing about your father the most? Uh, I'm actually going to have to try and hold it together here, Mitch. <laughs> I don't know if you remember when we went on NHK, the national broadcaster of Japan, uh, together during your book tour uh, of Japan, but uh, I lost it there for a second, hmm. and the presenter was very shocked. I don't remember, know if you remember yeah, that. Yeah, I remember. Very, mm-hmm. very, very brief incident, but, um, uh, okay, give me a second. Sure. Um, uh, I, I mean, you know, obviously I miss everything about him. It was so warm, and, uh, you know, he was so interested in my life, and so, you know, related to everything in his life and, of course, in the family and everything that he was doing. And it was just so wonderful to talk to him. Not that there weren't times that, you know, some sometimes there was a, a problem or a tension or something like that. Of course, that's natural. Right. But But just, you know, the experience of having him there and being able to talk to him. And I think the number one thing that I think people who read your book get this, but you can never stress it too much, is that more than, maybe not more than, but as much as being compassionate and interested in life and interested in, you know, philosophies of other cultures and our culture, he was just so full of joy. He had found his joy in being alive, and that just emanated out of him. And it infected you, you know, you were just, it just washed over you. So that is probably the thing that, that I miss the most. Yeah. You're so right. It's so funny because I was, I was just in a discussion with somebody not too long ago about Tuesdays with Maury. uh, It doesn't matter. They were in the Hollywood world and they, they kept saying, I just can't believe that he laughed as much as he did. I mean, he had ALS, and yet it seemed like you guys were always laughing. And I said, well, you just have to understand that he was, some people are oriented towards joy, and they'll find the joy even in the worst circumstances. And some people are oriented towards bleakness, and they'll find the bleakness even when they hit the lottery. So uh, Maury was just a joyous person, and you, 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 you're, you're dead on. Of course, you're his son. You should be. Uh, I, I always try to tell people uh, when they say, oh, it, was, it must have been so heartbreaking. I said, well, it was heartbreaking of what I was watching, but it was never heartbreaking when we were together. Uh, you know, there were very few times that we ended up crying and way many more times that we ended up laughing because uh, even if it was bittersweet laughter. And 
I think you you summed it up so well. It was it, it was infectious to be around someone who enjoyed life so much, and I know how yeah. dearly he loved you, Rob, and would speak about that endlessly with me, and and would talk about how you would just come in and and hold him and hug him and kiss him and how much that meant to him, you know, uh, just a physical contact. And so uh, I can't thank you enough for spending this time with us. I, I, I hope you'll come back and, and visit with us on this program sometime in the future because uh, just getting your perspective, it feels like uh, it feels like I turned a single sandwich into a double-decker, you know, <laughs> like I've got this whole... Yeah, you certainly whole... did that. If, you, if you'll allow me to say one last thing, I'd like to say something about my observation of you because I was there, as you know, a number of times right. when you met with my father. And I think this is also reflected in your book. You've, you've captured it very uh, eloquently, but I, I like to reiterate it. You know, you would come into the house and oftentimes, you know, you would look concerned or worried or, you know, uh, just ill at ease. And then you would go in and sit with dad for however long it was. I mean, I couldn't even remember guess an hour, two hours, four hours, six hours. I couldn't even tell you how long it was. And you would come out and you would just have this glow about you. This, this, you know, the joy had clearly just washed over you and everything had just changed within that time. It was really something pretty special to behold. Yeah. Well, your dad had that effect on a lot of people. And, uh, I, I, I always tell people that for me, he reminded me of a better version of myself. And, uh, he, he, you know, every, every student who comes into contact with an old teacher in some way, shape or form becomes a student all over again. Uh, you know, uh, to the fact, like if you see your old sixth grade disciplinarian teacher, uh, even if you're in your thirties, you somehow feel like now you're in a little desk and she's looking down at you and you need to behave, you know? Uh, and in Maury's case, I had gotten to college and I was very insecure and I was putting on a lot of phony airs of, 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 to cover that up. And Maury just broke me down and, uh, when I was his student and, 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 and said, no, you're okay the way you are and, and uh, let's find out who you are and, and made me believe in you know, that there was something worthwhile there. And then when I went and left college and got into all the business stuff of uh, journalism and some of the celebrity stuff and all the rest of it, I really sort of lost my way from a lot of that stuff. And then to be back in his presence again and what you're describing, especially with the long sessions that did go four or six hours, uh, it was just like, wow, I, I didn't lose that piece of myself. It's still here and he knows how to bring it out. And, and now that's on top instead of these other bad habits that I've developed. And so I'm not surprised I look differently uh, in the after versus the before picture uh, because I I, I was, you know, and he changed me and the best teachers do that. They change you. So thank you for reminding me of that and, and for having noticed it all those years ago. Uh, Rob Schwartz from Tokyo. It has been our absolute pleasure to have you on our podcast here. Thank you for spending the time with us. Uh, It's my pleasure, man. We'll be back uh, again, as we always are, uh, Lisa alongside. And uh, if you want to contact us, wetuesdaypeople.com, right, Lisa? I always have to. Yes, wetuesdaypeople.com, across the board, across all socials. And uh, come join us in our great group. Yeah, there's a lot of great discussions. And I'm sure after this show, there'll be many more. Until we talk to you again, on behalf of Lisa Goich, I am Mitch Album saying see you next Tuesday. Thank you for listening to Tuesday People. 
To be part of our conversation, join the Tuesday People community at wetuesdaypeople.com. Subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode and share it with your friends. We look forward to having you with us every Tuesday because, after all, we're Tuesday People.